0: It's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas here on Coot Street, yeah. And now, coming to you live from the ghostman room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, is John The Shroud and Gary K. Wolf, poised on the precipice of the end of the year
1: on the Coot Street Podcast. And here, here in Illinois, I should point out, the weather has turned, it's cold, it's rainy, it's October country. Uh, this is literally the part of Illinois that Ray Bradbury grew up in. This is – it's not October yet, but it's almost October. It is two minutes to October. Probably by the time this podcast goes out, it will be October. Yes. And I didn't know you were in Waukegan. Uh, Waukegan is maybe 50 miles north of here. But By the way, this is something I've not driven up there yet. We go up there every once in a while to see a concert at the a theater. Waukegan has now unveiled its statue. It's, I think, bronze statue of Ray Bradbury. Uh, only a few weeks ago, and it is, I've seen a photograph of it, you can look it up online, I'm sure, it is a statue of a Ray Bradbury riding a rocket like a bucking bronco and waving a book in his hand.
0: As he did so
1: often. As he did so often, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure that's how he arrived at conventions
0: on a regular basis.
1: Well, it's uh, at, at least supposedly the face looks like him, but... This is one of the things that that tells us is uh, what a kind of general chamber of commerce approach to a science fiction writer is. Books and rocket ships. That's pretty much the imagery that uh, that I think a lot of mainstream people associate with, uh, with science fiction. A lot of libraries, when they do science fiction exhibits, rocket ships and robots and books, same well, cliches they used 50 years ago.
0: Well, in their defense, though, I mean, that is the primary – Iconography of science fiction, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to do your own science fiction exhibit, wouldn't a rocket
1: ship feature in it? I mean, maybe not as but a bucking horse kind I, of thing, but still. But but rocket ships even in science fiction movies, rocket ships have not looked like V2 or Saturn 5 rockets in science fiction for a half century.
0: That is true, but then were you looking in the news in the last 24 hours? when Elon Musk's SpaceX people revealed their starship.
1: I've not seen the starship it, from Elon Musk.
0: Well, if, if everyone goes online, if I remember, I'll put a link into the show notes with this episode. But I'll tell you, it looks exactly
1: like one of those spaceships. It really, really does. Well, that probably has to do with exactly what I was saying, and that is that you, you, you get people who are essentially – Using the iconography of science fiction of a half century more to 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 visualize what is let's say let's let's admit it is a science fictional concept, um, and once you're talking about a starship which presumably will not launch from the surface of the earth, you can have any shape you want. Star
0: starship launching from the surface of the earth. I think oh, it is it's going a, to launch. yeah. I mean, is it an actual star starship? No, uh, but is it a spacecraft? Yes. Is it? Uh, rocket-shaped, yes. Is It's basically, it looks like a large silvery version of their Falcon-heavy uh, booster unit. And it's very striking-looking. I mean, I was going to say, you know, you're talking about science fiction and rocket ships and iconography. One thing that I think is true is that where, where science fiction doesn't predict, in a sense it preempts, it does something that resonates with somebody and then they work to make it real. I mean, this is the... The, the Bill Gibson Neuromancer Internet kind of virtual reality effect where pe- you know the, the the people who fell in love with Neuromancer lo- loved it so much that they wanted to make it real. And one of the reasons you design rocket ships the way we do, I mean, there's, there are a bunch of them, but one of them is you're making them look the way you expect them to look because of what you've seen in science fiction imagery.
1: I think that's true, except that science fiction imagery, uh, using that kind of rocket ship was uh last scene but that's a good question a, a good piece of trivia. when is the last uh saturn v style manned rocket used in a science fiction story not in something like the first man movie um certainly interst- i, I saw ad astra this weekend it it does have a a a, a three stage rocket that launches in it but once you're in outer space, the spaceships look like descendants of the space stations in 2001 or in interstellar or um, even the more realistic closer to home ones like in gravity Uh, the i I think a generation of people growing up on those movies wouldn't recognize uh, the rocket ship from destination moon back in 1950
0: maybe i mean certainly there are a couple of different schools of of, of spaceship design, if you will, or, or, or spacecraft design in the real world. And they, they, the ones we haven't seen much of are the ones that are actually descended from, if you will, the the industrial look of uh, alien and the Nostromo and everything else where well, they actually look like industrial refinery platforms in space. Because, of course, there's no reason in space for them to be needle-shaped or aerodynamic.
1: No, and I think I think those designs were very creative designs. I mean, I, th- they were... Uh, functional uh, unglamorous uh, really bad workplaces um and i think the idea of spaces and, and and there was a whole series of movies that followed there was a movie called pandorum which was the same sort of thing the idea of the goth, the, the industrial gothic castle in space seemed to dominate a certain brand of science fiction horror movies for a good 20 years after alien it's true um, it's true speaking of not being aerodynamic
0: And without making it personal about either of us, (laughs) yes, you have a very non-aerodynamic project just out from the Library of America, a great big rectangular chunk of paper.
1: Uh, There there are two volumes uh, and and, and a slipcase, and uh, it's technically not out until November, but everybody seems to be getting copies of it already. Apparently, people who pre-ordered copies are getting them. It's
0: um, – I have –
1: If you buy it direct from the Library of America,
0: if you go to LOA.org, you can purchase it at a 20% discount with free shipping within the United States. Isn't that a plug? Um, Now, right now,
1: two two, two
0: hardcover volumes in a handsome slipcase with –
1: is that Paul Lair art on it? Paul Lair, who for people who are paperback collectors will uh, remember, was probably along with Richard Powers, the most prominent – cover artist of the late 50s into the 70s, a lot of you know, James Blish and Heinlein. And the Library of America people, I had nothing to do with this, and I can't take credit for it, contacted his daughter and found three or four unused Paul Lear paintings, which are now the cover. One is the cover of the slipcase itself. One is the cover of one volume. The other is the cover of another volume. We should mention this is, as long as we're plugging it shamelessly, this is called American Science American Science Fiction. Eight classic novels of the 1960s, if you have the box, but if you only have the books, one is 1968 and, One is 1960 to 1966, and the other one is 1968 and 1969. And before anybody complains about it, no, I have nothing in particular against 1967. <laughs> it's just that 1967. Well, we all know what you
0: have against 1967, and that is what you could get to put in the book. Speaking of which, first of all, the books in there for, for – People who don't have them People who might be interested in ordering And there's a reason why we're going through this extended plug So bear with me uh-huh. uh, There's The High Crusade by Paul Anderson Waystation mm-hmm. by Clifford Simek Which has just been optioned for television Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes And Call Me Conrad Also known as This Immortal by Roger Zelazny Past Master by R.A. Lafferty Picnic on Paradise by Joanna Russ Nova oh. by Samuel R. Delaney And Inferio by Jack Vance and as soon as you read out that list, the first thing you have to say is, how could you get it so wrong? Why did you leave out all of the books that should have been in there, Gary? It's a mess. That, that, that
1: was completely deliberate on my part. I, I, I picked out all – Well, first, the first question that gets this, – this happened with the book of the, the 60s. The first thing I have to explain to people is Arthur C. Clarke was not an American. Uh, once you've explained that, um, then you – go to the second stage of explanation, which is how can you do a book of the 1960s without Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin or Kurt Vonnegut, or even Madeline Engel, whose Wrinkle in Time was a 60s novel. They're all in other Library of America volumes of their own. So they were off the table. And then I run up against the same issue that you as an anthologist run up against. And that is not everybody is going to give you permission to do what you might want to do. Um, And so there were things that were eliminated that way.
0: So this is basically eight classic leftovers of the 60s.
1: I could have done eight classic novels of the 60s, probably from 1968 alone. Uh, The problem is leaving out a lot of worthy things. And the other issue is you're you're trying to squeeze eight novels into two volumes. Uh, In the 1950s, you managed that with nine novels because novels were a little bit shorter then. But it means... No stranger in a strange land. No doom. Um, no, well, again, people did complain that I didn't have um, anything in uh, anything like stand in Zanzibar. But again, you're dealing with a Brunner being a British writer. So, so there were there were those considerations. But nobody ha- has claimed, and I certainly wouldn't claim, that these are the best novels of the 1960s. I think they represent the field in a lot of different ways, and they represent a different kind of reading experience. For example, let's go from most familiar to least familiar. I suspect that Flowers for Algernon, which is certainly probably the most widely read book in the set, is likely familiar to everybody. In the States, they teach that novel in high school now. I'm guessing that at the other end of the scale, relatively few people will have read Jack Vance's Inferior. Uh, which is, I think, his best non-series novel, his best novel that's not connected to his Dying Earth saga and so forth and so on. But it's a very good novel, and it's uh, it, it's not one that you hear discussed quite a bit.
0: Here's a question I don't know if you've been asked it before or you've given it thought. I presume that you have actually read all of the books in the eight classic novels of the 60s, And in the nine classic novels of the 50s, I'm going to sort of go out there, and that you, in fact, read them around the time that you selected them as well. You didn't just pick it from memory. You actually teched that they were still okay. Went back. Mm -hmm. And from there, let me ask, what other than length do you see changing between the novels of the 50s and the novels of the 60s?
1: Um... Other than length, I think one of the things that's very dramatic in the 60s volume is um, a shift in style, or I should say a shift toward a more self-conscious style. Um, in the 1950s volume, the authors who I think stood out uh, stylistically were probably uh, Sturgeon and Bester, and, and especially Bester. Bester's novel, The Stars My Destination, to me even now reads like a late 1960s novel. Because he's he's all over the map stylistically. He's playing with an unsympathetic character. He's playing with an unsympathetic character in 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 the, who's getting revengeance on a bunch of other unsympathetic characters. Um, and by the time you get into the sixties, you have uh, somebody like Simak who's still writing in the kind of congenial pastoral style that he developed throughout the forties and fifties. So in the sixties, you still have that. Uh, More or less conventional style, but you have uh, specifically uh, Delaney and uh, Zelazny and Russ, who are much more stylistically adventurous than than most of the 50s writers were. So I'd I'd say that's the greatest shift I I, I saw. Um, Nova is technically a space opera, but it doesn't read like that. It reads like something completely new. Although I realize that
0: the way the contents of the two volumes in, the sli- in, the, in the, this set split is based around what was available and book length and practicality as well as anything no. else, do you think that the second set of books, the ones that are comprised the Lafferty, the Rust, the Delaney, and the Vance, mm. actually show the beginning of the
1: arrival of the new wave? Oh, I think, yeah, they they do, to the extent that the new wave was an American phenomenon. Um, And I think it was in terms of short fiction, because the new wave in America, I associated primarily with, oh, maybe three editors. One would have been Judith Merrill, one would have been C.O. Goldsmith, the lolly at Amazing and Fantastic, and one probably would have been Terry Carr, although that is a little bit later. Uh, but there clearly was uh, – and, and another one actually would have been Fred Pohl, who was doing very innovative things at, at, at Bantam Books for a while. So, yeah, I think that the new wave, uh, without calling itself such, was clearly expressed by something that uh, – by, by novels like Nova or um, – and Call Me Conrad. and Because, uh, because uh, I mean,
0: if you compare a book like, say, The High Crusade to a book like Nova, mm-hmm. they, I mean, the, the High Crusade, which is a strong book, so I'm not – in any way criticizing it, does read more like uh, a book written in the chronological shadow of the 50s, if you like. Mm-hmm. It's, in that, it's in that sort of overlap as we move into the 60s, whereas a book like Nova, uh, maybe a book like uh, Picnic on Nearside, they begin to look read like foreshadowings of what we're going to
1: see in the 70s. I think so. Um, I think one of the things I did want to do, and I, it just, I, when I was reading uh, novels throughout the 60s. And one of the things I thought of going in was we should represent the whole decade. But with science fiction, with literary history, as with history, when we think of the 60s, culturally, we tend to think of the late 60s. We tend to think of 1967, 68, 69, Woodstock, uh, you know, countercultural movies, um, the assassinations, the violence, the, uh, in, in the States at least. Um, but in fact, the early 60s, As I think Waystation demonstrates, and to some extent uh, the High Crusade, the early 60s looked a lot like the 50s. There wasn't a sudden – there was not a sudden moment in in, in science fiction history when everybody said, it's 1960. Let's write wildly experimental, coruscating prose now. Um,
0: Well, also, I mean, I assume – I mean, I don't have to pull it out because I'm now doing this this part from memory – that books like High Crusade, uh, the Waystation – possibly even Flowers for Algernon, really have their origins and may well have been partly written at the tail end of the 50s as well.
1: Well, Flowers for Algernon, uh, certainly the short, short story Flowers for Algernon dates from 1959, I believe. Um, and and Daniel Keyes, whose who's, uh, actual birth name was not Keyes. I'd forgotten what it was. The Library of America people found this out. But Daniel Keyes is often thought of as somebody who came into the field from outside, who wrote one science fiction story and then moved on. He grew up in the field. He grew up uh, working as an editor of science fiction magazines. He worked as a, an assistant editor for Stan Lee's comics back in the early 1950s. And his friends were people like Damon Knight and Judith Merrill and um, what was then called the Hydra Club. So, so very much you can see Flowers for Algernon, even though it was very much his idea and might-based very heavily. Uh, Daniel Keyes wrote a book called Algernon, Charlie and I about the, mostly about the origins of the story. It's a very personal story, but it's one that came out of his involvement in the science fiction community in the early 1950s. And I would make an argument that uh, the two authors, uh, Jack Vance and and Clifford Simak, really developed their styles in the late forties and early fifties. The one oddball, of course, as he is in any list of writers <laughs> you possibly come up with is Lafferty, who is, who is I think if I'm not mistaken, older than Vance or uh, or uh, Anderson or anybody else or Simak. I think he was actually older than Clifford Simak, but he didn't start writing until he was in his 40s or 50s. I believe, yeah. So so he comes out of uh, of nowhere, and this is the other problem with the idea like New Wave. Uh, Is New Wave something that happens among authors or is it something that happens among publishers? Because Lafferty was going to write what he wrote no matter what, as you are well aware from having edited the best of R.A. Lafferty.
0: I don't think Lafferty is a New Wave writer at all.
1: I think 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 Lafferty is a writer who happened to happen at
0: at, at the same time as the New Wave and it was possible for him to publish in the venues where the New Wave is being published. Which is a, a slightly different thing than maybe being someone who is looking at, at developing a career, is in step with what's being talked about, writes new wave fiction, uh, you know, because that's what you want to do. I think Lafferty was writing the only thing he could write, and it just
1: happened to be that. I, I agree completely, and I, I, I think the point of, of Lafferty is that this is why I ask if new wave is something that happened in publishing or in fiction. There are a few writers, Lafferty being the chief among them who probably would have had difficulty getting published had there not been a kind of new wave sensibility among editors. Um, there are probably a handful of other writers like that. David Bunch comes to mind, who you know had no sense of where they were in terms of the science fiction writing community, but they wrote what they did, and because of the editorial openness that the new wave brought, they were able to get published.
0: Because the box set hasn't made its way here to the other end of the world, have you a chance in the pages of the book to uh, pen an introduction, to, to frame the, you know, the the material that you are presenting or are they I, just there
1: naked? No, I, I I asked to be able to to do an introduction for this partly because um, I needed to make the point clear up front that no, there's not going to be Le Guin or Dick or Vonnegut in this because they are in other volumes. The Library of America – for what strikes me as being perfectly rational reasons, doesn't want to reprint the same book in two different uh, editions. But apart from that, there was the argument that I wanted to make that the 50s was uh, a transitional decade. I mean, it's absolutely true that uh, the, uh, the, the way station the Clifford Semak is very much like uh, his better stories of the 40s and 50s and the and, uh, high crusade is classic Paul Anderson but there's nothing that, so that there's this sense of the maturity of that generation of writers, the writers of the 40s and 50s, you know, doing late work and doing it uh, in many ways in a more sophisticated way I think and then the other half of the 50s where, so you have this sense of Of maturity, the other half of the 50s, of course, the the Delaney, the Russ, the Zelazny, uh, feels like, doesn't feel like a revolt to me, but it feels like uh, there was a sense of revolution about what they were doing. And one of the things that interests me is that um, unlike the way the new wave was represented, at least by the young Moorcock in New Worlds, I don't think that these younger writers were rejecting the earlier generation at all. I think they were writing what they wanted to write, but um, the sense I've got from talking to uh, to, to Chip Delaney and, and to Daniel Keyes, I never had a chance to meet Joanna Ross, was that they were very appreciative of older science fiction. They just wanted to do something different. Yeah, yeah, which is fair enough. So
0: it took you, I mean, I, I know because we've talked about it privately, we've talked on the podcast oh. a number of times, so apologies to everybody when we're repeating this, you you know you really completed this this task several years ago. I mean, we've been waiting for it to, to clock around. Mm-hmm. H- have co- conversations begun as to the, the novels of the seventies, or is the bestseller bloat too terrifying to attempt to sort of put it put within one kind of set of covers?
1: Um, the, the, the conversation is at a very early stage. I think one of the things that the Library of America is interested in doing now is looking at uh, representing science fiction not simply in terms of uh, these omnibus collections like this now, there may very well be uh, a volume of the 70s i have some ideas in mind for it already as a matter of fact which i would be glad to share with you but i think that one of the reasons this book was delayed it's been uh, seven years since the 1950s volume came out but in that interim um they published, I think, four volumes of Le Guin. Uh, they published uh, an anthology, El- Elisa Oseck's *The Future of Female* anthology. Uh, they've b- developed interest in doing individual volumes about individual science fiction writers, which is more the Library of America's traditional way of doing things. Um, so, the, the the real question is, who is likely to be a possibility? Uh, they started with Philip K. Dick. They did one volume of Lovecraft, who's marginal to science fiction, but belongs in this general fantastic area. And then they've um, they've done Le Guin, and they've done Shirley Jackson. So I think there there's a lot of openness to looking at, uh, at different writers. Uh, the 70s, the problem, of course, would be uh, that you're dealing with uh, sometimes more bloated novels, sometimes not. I mean, some of the novels that immediately come to mind uh, in the 1970s would be uh, Silverberg's Dying Inside, uh, Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, um, Kate Willems, where late the sweet Birds sa- sang. Um, and then th- none of those are excessively long novels, so I think it's possible to put together um, some kind of a selection like that. Do you have a feeling,
0: based on your experience over the last decade working with Library of America, that there actually is a, an imperative to either do the 70s or acknowledge that the individual books may be done based around authors instead. I mean, having done Picnic at Nearside on Nearside, for example. Picnic in the Paradise. Oh, Picnic in Paradise. Sorry, sorry. Because Picnic in Nearside is virally. Yeah. Oh. Uh, having done that, it would be obvious to put the female man into the 70s volumes. But do mm. you get to stage you start going, well, it's better off if they just do a, a Russ volume instead?
1: One of the things we talked about at uh, at, at some stage, and I think space considerations became part of it um and it's this has been pointed out to me uh correctly that uh, picnic on paradise is one of a number of alex stories and the alex stories as a group are, uh, are absolutely fascinating and, and to some extent the most important of those stories i think uh, is one called the second inquisition actually the last alex story that she wrote and becomes kind of a key to the whole series, including uh, The Picnic on Paradise, which is very episodic as it is. Um, so there was some discussion about could we fit in the other Alex stories as an appendix to the volume or something like that. It didn't, didn't happen. I mm. can't mm. necessarily explain why. But I think, yeah, there would be a, a – had had I had uh, my way, I would have probably had a volume of Joanna Russ. Uh, well, I think that it's uh, – a it's, volume of Chip. Yeah, a volume of Samuel R. Delaney seems to me to be entirely reasonable. Yeah, but then I mean, again, you've come up with a problem that you have. Well, between Dahlgren and through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, you've pretty much got two volumes of a of a well-bound well bound Library of I, America. Well, yeah. Also,
0: I, I guess one thing that I'd, that I'd say that particularly if you said, well, if you take into account the issues with permissions and the eccentricity mm-hmm. of you know, authors' estates and everything else, do you reach a point where you go? Too much of the key work is, is in print anyway. So, what is the actual value of it? I mean, I can, I see the value of doing the fifties volume. I see the value of doing the mm. sixties. I can see the attraction of doing the seventies and eighties. But I also see the thing where you sort of go, well, hang on, what are you highlighting? I mean, most of the, are, are the seventies books in print. The ones you're talking about certainly are. Certainly
1: are in print. You know, I'm not sure about where like the, I'm not sure about the Wilhelm, um, but the The other issue, I think, that's a good question, and I think the other issue, which is uh, a reasonable issue, is that uh, the Library of America is supposed to be kind of a historical record, a little bit like the Pleiades series in um, in France. And to that extent, when you get into the '70s and '80s, you're almost getting into contemporary literature. You're not. You know, this is this is a, a publishing project that began with uh, Washington Irving and Emerson and Melville and Mark Twain and 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 so forth and so on. And it gradually moved into the 20th century. Did sort of, I, my, my impression is they more or less sort of felt the waters with hard boiled fiction of the 1940s, with Dashiell Hammett, with Raymond uh, Chandler. There's a wonderful volume of women mystery writers of the 40s. So they started doing these volumes to represent a genre uh, more than individual writers. For example, there's a really good mystery novel um, in the. Women writers in the nineteen forties called Laura. It was made into a classic movie. It was written by a woman named Vera Kaspari. Um I don't think that anybody would argue that she had enough other books to um, to warrant an entire volume. And I think the same thing's true with some of um, some of the people we've got in these volumes. But on the other hand, uh, the idea is not to simply represent uh, all of science fiction up until today. It's to represent those things which have uh attain some version of classic status and if you get much later than the 60s or the early 70s and the 70s admittedly is 40 some years ago now uh then are you really looking at books that have withstood the test of time in that sense no well you're
0: not you're 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 unearthing
1: which in some ways is a perfectly
0: valid thing to do you know uh and so, is possibly the the best footnote, if you like, volume to do. is would, you know, would it be actually to do an equivalent of Peter Straub's supernatural and horror volumes and do two volumes of short fiction and then kind of set, say, that's it, you're
1: done? Um, I'd love to have done something like that. As a matter of fact, the, before the 1950s volume came out, the um, – Uh, some of the people who are working with the Library of America not terribly familiar with science fiction suggested I do a science fiction novels of the 1940s to which I responded not quite along the lines of name one but there were not a lot of science fiction novels in the 1940s published as science fiction novels Uh, so my suggestion was why don't we do a short stories of the 40s and novels of the 50s and then when we saw how many novels in the 50s there were the short story anthology sort of went uh, by the way but but you know Straub's American Fantastic Tales would be a good model for a kind of um, historical anthology you and they do uh,
0: American science fiction in the 20th century from 1900 to 1950
1: and 1951 to 2000 1999 hmm. that's probably true. that would be a really difficult thing to represent um, when you well I mean you look at the uh, science fiction anthologies a couple come to mind. One one is the Vandermeer's Anthology of Science Fiction, which admittedly wanted to increase the cultural reach of anthologies like that and represent a lot of things that's not normally represented as science fiction. And there were books like the Norton Anthology of Science Fiction that McGuinn and Brian Atterbury worked on. There was the Wesleyan Anthology of Science Fiction, uh, which I thought was very good. And these are 1,000-page-long books, largely. Um, and to represent... Um, all of 20th century science fiction in two volumes, I would be really intimidated at that idea.
0: Well, yeah, though, remember, you are also limited by the Library of America's own mission, which would be its North American Mm. science fiction, really United States science fiction. So that begins to narrow it. And I guess, and uh, in step with what the Vandermeers did, but on a, a, a North American level you would have the ability to perhaps rebalance the tale being told, because that would be the temptation, wouldn't it, to, to broaden and move away from the classic gernsback continuum view of science
1: fiction. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thought. I, <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, the, the I guess my reaction to that is that I'm already a little self-conscious about – the Library of America, being the Library of America, in other words, it's entirely reasonable that any uh, nonprofit organization—and people should know that it is a nonprofit—which is dedicated to defining an American literature—and uh, French, uh, the, the same thing happens in France. It's happened in Sweden. I don't, uh, to some extent, I don't know if there's uh, anything equivalent in, in contemporary English literature. When you start putting together anthologies. Uh, it seems to me you're – you can't represent science fiction globally and represent it only as American science fiction. In other words, there's a point at which – But, the, the, but the then, po- then surely point point that's not what they'd be doing though. I mean that if you like, the, it
0: may be, if you like, the mm-hmm. only valid framework for presenting the Gernsbeck continuum because you're laying down track lines by calling it American science fiction. That's true that says this is what it is you're not saying this is science fiction you're expressly saying i understand at the get-go that this excludes Mm -hmm. the rest of the world
1: right well it's the idea is not to exclude the rest of the world so much as to say what is quintessentially american about this what makes this american science fiction as opposed to british or german or japanese or australian science fiction
0: and then i think you see that's the other thing that would be interesting about doing it and why it could be quite an interesting experience to do and that is to stop and go well okay let's obviously you're talking about a baseline acceptable level of quality of work right so there's that and then you're also then talking about it has to be science fiction and it has to be written by americans in america and published in america fine and then you're also could be talking about what actually does this work say about america itself Because that is the mission of the Library of America, right? You're talking about Mm -hmm. defining an American character. Well, what about this fiction, this particular science fiction, is about defining the American character as well? And there's a lot of the pre-1960s science fiction that maps very neatly to the evolution of public consciousness about technology and science and America's place in the world during that period of time. So I think you could actually do something
1: really kind of interesting
0: and tight and defined.
1: I think you could make, what you're talking about is making a very interesting argument about the nature of American science fiction in, in terms of a short fiction over a period of time. My concern um, would be that you'd be largely dealing with the most familiar stories. Um, I mean, it, you, you could do the kind of digging that the Vandermeers did, and I know the kind of digging when Peter Straub was doing his American fantastic tales he wasn't looking through other anthologies he was getting first editions of, of of books by people like F. Marion Crawford from you know from from 100 years ago so he really was digging out new things and had a lot of uh, uh knowledgeable advisors uh doing that kind of digging might be interesting i think a lot of the excavation of early american science fiction has been done i think a lot of anthologies uh are out there But the other concern is, wouldn't we be looking at the same familiar stories, would be looking at who goes there, would be looking at Heinlein's universe or any number of Heinlein stories, a couple of classic Asimov stories, a couple of classic Bradbury stories? Because by and large, it seems to me American science fiction was defined by its most popular writers. I don't think you're going to find very many um, stories by uh, Stanley Weinbaum that are more interesting or more familiar than a Martian Odyssey.
0: True, but since you'd be looking at it from a the perspective of twenty nineteen, you may find other material that you feel balances the picture and maybe broadens the story that gets it told. It's part it of what be. Lisa Yasek was doing in her book, obviously providing a counterpoint. Mm-hmm. It's part of part of what the Vandermeers did in their enormous science fiction book. And part of what 's been doing gener- done generally in science fiction and fantasy in the last decade or or less, so you know I think that might be v- interesting now you could you could and I, I, I kind of sense that you are you 're arguing that enough of that's been done anyway that maybe it 's not worth the enormous effort that it would take because it would be a huge effort to do it mm-hmm. properly uh, that
1: that is maybe not warranted and the other question that comes into mind is um in, in favor of doing an anthology like this is a lot of these classic anthologies don't stay in print forever. Um, I mean, the argument uh, in, in favor of the Library of America, uh, which both works and for and against getting permissions, is that these things will stay in print. They will be available. They, they are now part of a kind of informal national library, which is uh, it's not supported by the government, but it certainly is um, it, it, It's not a profit-making enterprise. So that argument... C- is is a persuasive one, I think. That yeah, uh, the Lisa Yasek anthology may or may not be in uh, in in print forever, and certainly some of the stories that um, that she discovered um, and uh, makes you think as as an anthologist. I think, of course, you don't generally do reprint anthologies other than the year's best. But one of the things I've always been fascinated by, and every time I see an anthology like The Future Is Female, where she did this literal excavation of the magazines is how many of all the thousands and thousands of stories that showed up in the magazines and have never been reprinted how many of them are either extremely revealing of the state of science fiction at that time or just really good stories that for one reason or another nobody reprinted i mean lisa for example discovered that rolf conklin did not like to reprint stories by women uh, because he really apparently felt they shouldn't write science fiction. He did reprint some, but he did, he didn't like it much. Um, and there may be, well, this is um, this this is not much different from John W. Campbell telling Delaney that you know his readers couldn't accept an, a, a black protagonist. Sorry, um, but then yeah. again. You, you, you look, I, mean, which, I mean, it's really I, one of the
0: reasons most of that material remains out of print. Is what I what I think of when I think about this, the Justine Labastiee argument. I hmm. went back and I read it, and it was terrible.
1: Um, which I'm sure is true, and I'm sure that uh, that, that a lot of the stories uh, that are left in planned stories are better left there. But the point I've made also uh, is is that stories that were reprinted in the first round of anthologies in the late 1940s and 1950s were overwhelmingly stories from astounding and there are stories now that in one sense looked formulaic and tacky uh but in another sense look a lot more advanced than they did at the time for example lee brackett's uh pulp stories um she was a very conscious could be a very poetic stylist when she wanted to she certainly taught a lot to Ray bradbury uh she certainly wrote at least one, uh, I thought, very good adult modern science fiction novel, *Along Tomorrow, which was in my 1950s set for the Library of America. But she made her living, and and, and of course she went on to write Hollywood movies, but she made her living most of her career writing pulp stories about, I think, Eric John Stark. And some of those were terrific. And C.L. Moore's stories were terrific. So uh, I suspect that by now most of them have been unearthed.
0: Um, they're available in one way or another if you're willing to go to specialty presses and everything else most things are available one way or another
1: well one of the things, one of the most interesting series of anthologies which I had um, and and gave way to simply Mike Ashley's History of the Science Fiction Magazines but the first couple of volumes of that were History of the Science Fiction Magazines with stories illustrating the points he was making, so you could really see the kind of editorial evolution of the field over a period of time and uh, and Ashley's Books are utterly fascinating because he seems to have read through every edition of every science fiction magazine, in both the UK and the United States over a period of nearly a century now. Very much, yeah. So, so is is our is consensus that there probably aren't any really great hidden masterpiece gems in that massive. I would be surprised that there are hidden masterpieces, Gary. I think there might be
0: interesting stories to be told. I think you might find that there are fragments of history to be on Earth that broaden the perspective of the Hmm. story that we tell about the field and how it's evolved and that some of those works may well be well worth highlighting. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: hidden masterpieces is a lot to ask.
1: I probably is, so... The other sorry. question is – I'm sorry, go I'm ahead. Uh, well, my point was uh, – and I know this question has come up before and people have asked you about it. When you look at the contents of, uh, let's say, the pulp magazines – and let's say – let's not go back to the 30s when there were dozens of pulp magazines. It's just, it's, you go back to science fiction of 70 years ago, say, um, and uh, you're looking at three or four major magazines with 12, 10 to 12 issues a year. How many science fiction stories per year came out during the 1950s and 1960s in professional venues? And how does that number compare to the number of stories which appear annually in the much expanded professional venues of today? My impression is that more work gets published now. That's my impression too, by quite a
0: bit. Uh, It's my impression that there is a... Almost endless cavalcade of small publishers and medium-sized publishers, and the more publishers there are, then there uh, the the more opportunity for exactly this thing you know, for 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 more and more and more and more um, work to be to be published. Now, whether it gets read or found is a whole other thing. I mean, I think the impression mm-hmm. I have, and it might not be valid, but the impression I have is that the work in the 50s came out in. Half a dozen, a dozen known venues. Yeah. Anybody who was reading at that times, you know, who, who you talk to these days, will tell you that it all happened at a time when you could read everything. You know, the thing you can't do anymore, and now it's just a snowstorm.
1: I think it is, and I think, and it's a snowstorm of what appears to me to be a higher general level of. I'll say competence, if not quality. In other words, the 1950s market had the big the big magazines. It had uh, uh, analog, or, and I was still astounding them. Fantasy and science fiction, and and Galaxy. But there was a secondary. There were the, there were the junk magazines. There was super science fiction. There was future science fiction. Things where you know, uh, uh, the things where I know that Ellison and Silverberg would write half or more of the contents of a whole issue. I don't know if that junk market is still there. I don't know if you can just write a uh, a junk monster story and expect to dump it at the bottom of the market the way you could in the 50s. And get paid. So, and get paid for it, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm certainly, you know,
0: uh, there is there are places where you can make your work available to the world and not get paid. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that work actually is much more sophisticated than what you're talking about anyway. I think that there are some small semi-prozines where it feels like you can kind of, if you send them work, you will get published. But mm. I don't know that the kind of second... In fact, I'm not sure that I really think there's a lot of that, second, that same kind of second-string publishing right now. Uh, so many of the magazines who, that are out there sort of, with the various ways they get funded and everything else are looking at different ways of making themselves stand out, so they want to be seen to publish and to, to pay close to CIFWA rates. And if, you get, if you're getting paying close to SIFWA rates, well, then you're beginning to push for a certain kind of quality along with that. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's there.
1: Well, the, 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 what I'm getting at is, uh, is that maybe not the top end of the quality may not be better than it's ever been. I mean, there are not a lot of writers today uh, who can write – at the top level of, say, the way Theodore Sturgeon or Joanna Westwood or Le Guin was writing. But I think the bottom end, I don't think you can get away with So I'm saying, I'm guessing that the baseline of short fiction today is probably higher than it's ever been. Probably. Um,
0: if you, I mean, if you wanted to say, like, the, the, the main level of
1: quality is higher, I think that's probably true. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, and yet, even though the quality is higher, it seems more challenging for a young writer to develop a career. Um, and in fact, and I know we're segueing into something that I know you heard from one of our listeners, but it's an interesting question to me. Because when you look back at or talk to writers uh, who developed their careers in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, the only one practically we can still talk to from that era is, is Bob Silverberg. But I've heard from him, I've heard from a lot of other people uh, that they weren't setting out to build careers, they were setting out to sell stories. Um, the idea was you write as many stories as you can and you sell as many of them as you can and, if you, and, and you keep at it. That was Heinlein's advice. Sell the story, get money for it. Now it seems you have to design a career before you even begin. Uh, you have to have your own mechanisms for publicity, for promotion, you have to have strategies, you have to know... When you can put together a collection of short stories uh, for a commercial publisher, and when you put together a collection of short stories for an ebook that you just put out there, uh, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the the sense I get from younger writers is that there is a lot more pressure to define your writing as a career rather than as a bunch of stories that you write and send out. I
0: certainly hear most writers that i talk to talking about in terms of developing a career and working Mm -hmm. out how to get paid which is completely reasonable right i i'm not sure that i'm convinced that there are you know there's one pathway to it any or if there ever was i'm not sure it's even clear what that path is i do think that we are pushing into a time where it's harder to maintain a, a professional career as mm. a full-time paid career. I think we're seeing more writers sliding. Well, no, more writers choosing, not sliding. sliding's the wrong word. Choosing to have a mixed career, if you like, where they have a day job and then they have, you know, the you know the the work that they do, you know, the writing income that they get. I think it is difficult to very difficult to derive a stable income as a writer now? I think it's harder than it was, arguably. Actually, do I think that's true. I was going to say, do I think it's harder than it was in the 50s and 60s? I think it's harder than it was in the 70s and 80s. I think in f- the 50s and 60s, the idea of being a paid science fiction writer who could have a career and actually live off that money was an emergent concept
1: rather than a developed concept. I remember uh, talking to... yeah, uh, no, no. no uh one time i remember talking to Aldous budris who began publishing in the early 1950s and he was more or less of the generation of silverberg and he said that these are writers who grew up reading the pulp magazines in the in, in the 30s and 40s um and unlike heinlein or asimov they grew up with the idea i can be a science fiction writer for a living and his argument is that the people who began in the early 1950s and sheckley was part of this group and uh Walter Miller was part of this group, and and Daniel Keyes. These were people who thought, okay, now there is enough out there that I can plan on making a living as a science fiction writer, which people like Heinlein and Asimov never thought about. And they were able to do that. Um, And I think that – so now you have the profession of science fiction writer, which as a paying concept is maybe a half century old, has become much more complicated because – As you mentioned, the markets are much more varied. Some of them don't pay much. And there are other kinds of things besides day jobs. You can write comic books. You can write uh, graphic novels. You can write games. You can do um, Hollywood kinds of consulting and this sort of thing. So it it seems to me that piecing together a a career as a writer is much more complicated than it was back then.
0: I think it is. I think that's an artifact of changes changes in publishing. Uh, i I think that the comparative death of the midlist has had a huge impact. I think that now na- the the shift towards people believing that fiction is something you should either not pay for or pay a small amount for that gets hyper discounted by the Amazons and whatever of this world, so that it's harder to make an actual living at it. I think that's a reality, and you're in this whole terrible gig economy kind of concept where you have to you know do a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this. And yes, there are some people who are doing very well at it, but if you were one of the Clarion West people that I was dealing with, uh, you know, the class of Clarion West, you know, back mm-hmm. in July, and you were trying to look at, at how you could build, I guess, first of all, a writing career based solely on writing what you wanted and publishing it, mm-hmm. and then looking also at how to make a living at it, which are two different things... I think the writing career becomes a targeted concept because we're in a time when markets, audiences are much more segmented than they used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to be writing It's like you're now writing to your niche to some degree, talking to your niche, talking to your community, uh, which is not inherently a bad thing, but it's a thing. And so I think you do need to structure that a little bit. And then there's the whether you can actually make a living at it, and that's the harder hardest thing of all, because okay, no one's making yeah. you know, none's making real money. You know?
1: well, I mean, the, the the problem is that there are enough people making real money that um, that it looks more attainable than it probably really is. I mean, my my there for Nettie Okorafor is a good example who started writing novels and then branched out into various other things. She's got television deals. She's doing Black Panther. She's doing graphic novels. She's uh, enormously successful in a way that few people can aspire to be, I would imagine n k jemison is in that category also. on the other hand, you have writers like Ted Chang, who, as far as I know, never intends to give up his day job and never intends to write a story that he he doesn't have to write in other words, he writes the stories that come to him, or a Jeff Ford who writes essentially whatever he wants um and Historically, supported himself in other ways. Now he's, he's doing well enough, I suppose. But I th- it seems to me that those are two different ambitions. One ambition is you want to be a successful person who lives off your writing and writes enough to keep that going. On the other hand, you want to be an artist who writes only what really means something to you, and you'll only send it in when it's good and ready. Does that make sense? It, it, it sort of does, though. I
0: think it's kind of looking at outliers, you know, mm. Ted, who's terrific, and so this is not aimed at him, is a strange outlier in the field. You know, he is. Uh, to, when you look at him and how he's approached his career, it's unusual. Most writers don't write that small an amount of work. They don't, mm. they don't. They're not as successful in maintaining a profile because of the excellence of that work, and they are not as successful probably as you know doing as well financially as he had with it either. Uh, the Nadia Corifors and Nora Jemison's. And the handful of writers who right now are doing extremely well, and it looks as though Charlie Jane Anders may be moving into into their mm. number, and it looks like a couple of other people are, and that things look very promising for Tamson Muir with Gideon the Ninth, which is a bestseller at the moment. I think they, they're they the outlier. It's a, it's, the, it's what's happening to the writer who comes along and sells, you know, two, you know a few short stories, some mid-list novels, and they're, they're good. I mean, a, a good example, mm-hmm. I think, off the top of my head, would be more like Suzanne Palmer, right, who had her okay. I, her, her novel Finder come out this year and has a second novel coming out next year. And I don't know anything about the finance of it at all, but I'd bet there were mid-list advances. And mm-hmm. she publishes in magazines. She publishes some very good short stories, but is trying to obviously develop her name and be- get a stable level of awareness in the field. Those are the people who are, you know, And those are... First of all, those are the people who are the core of everybody writing. And that career, that one where you're trying to build a profile, is the most common one. The, the TED or the the Nettie thing. I mean, Nettie to some mm. degree, Nor in a different way, a couple other people in different ways, get kind of hit by lightning and they're in that top percentage of, you know, people who are earning right. money. Uh then there's people who have that top percentage of reputation, which don't, doesn't always correspond. Uh, but I mean, the, the core question was, you know, do you need to be more prolific now to make a name? Do you need to make a name to have a career?
1: Mm.
0: How do you go about it? What's the right strategy? You know, where should you actually go to submit your work? And I think when you're looking at it from that perspective, depending on what kind of work you're writing as well and that gets a huge factor I think that the um, the search for eyeballs for readers has to be the, the premier thing for a new writer I mean like if you were just starting up or you were f- a handful of short stories into your career or you've just sold your first novel you're looking to get the largest number of eyeballs possible. You're looking to sell to a larger publisher if you can. Mm-hmm. You're looking to uh, get published on tour.com where half a million people could potentially look at your story, that kind of thing. But that takes time and building and submitting and all that. I don't know there's more pressure to produce more, but I think to make it count, yes. And I think there's more pressure think- to make it remain available.
1: Um. Okay, or to follow up, I guess, with, with, with something that's very successful, I mean, one of the uh, – a writer who – I know you've you've edited Sad Hussein, for example, strikes me as a very distinctive voice. You come out of the gate with something that doesn't sound like anything else anybody has heard before, which is more and more of a challenge these days, uh, but it's a challenge that more and more people um, – seem to me. And, you know, on on the basis of the one story, maybe two stories, maybe three stories I've read by Saad Hussein. I want to see what else he's doing. I feel the same way about Alex Harrow. I mean, I've read one novel and maybe two or three short stories. Um, That's enough to make me want to know what's going on with that writer. And I think making that um, sort of distinctive... It's not always a distinctive voice, but it may be a distinctive voice. In the case of Hussein, I think it is. Um, I think that becomes as important if not more important than being prolific Um, because one of the questions that come up is does a writer have to just be more prolific than ever in order to make an impact now and i don't know the answer to that because there are writers There is an
0: answer to that because i don't think there is a single answer you know it's like if you write one book and it has an enormous impact and sells very very well you don't have to follow it up that quickly you know uh, sometimes you're pressured. I mean, I, I would imagine though I don't know this, so I'm speculating and I want to be very clear about that, that there's some pressure on Tamsin Muir to deliver the three Gideon, the ninth books in tight succession. So they can be published close together to make a broad, bigger impact,
1: you know? Well, uh, and, and, uh, yeah. And I think that's, that's a genre thing. I think that has to do with markets rather than, uh, uh of the quality or the, uh, uh, impact of your work i remember remember we had uh, a few years ago when uh, william gibson was on the podcast along with uh, eileen gunn and i i mentioned something like at that point he was two or three years between novels now it's something like four years between novels and his response was that is an artifact of the science fiction world he thought that you know if people people don't Badger, Margaret Atwood, or Joyce Carol Oates for not publishing a novel every year. But if you're in a field like ours, you're expected to follow up your success almost immediately with another success. And and it was clear that he was thinking of himself in terms of that literary market rather than the genre market. And I think he's right. If you have the kind of reputation that he has now in the general literary field, sure.
0: I mean, if, if you can afford to them.
1: publish, if you can afford to publish on that. Um
0: that kind of a cycle then fine you know but yes you're right the the genre's history as a pulp field suggests that when you're producing genre fiction you're going to produce with regularity build an audience right. keep it coming out those sort of things particularly at book level and if you're doing reasonably well or there's that other alternate strange thing that sort of says just to make even if you're only doing moderately well just to keep your name going and you can have a niche you know uh, so, right who knows you know i don't know but we're not going to get to the end of this here right now. We're almost at the end of our hour, believe it or not, Gary, having really? waffled around in something that I can't imagine anyone will find interesting. But, you know,
1: and then we'll come back well, I and mean, try again. Uh, well, we, we can try again. I mean, certainly anybody who wants career advice uh, listening to this podcast would have nothing useful to take away from it whatsoever. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, you know, except, fact, maybe except we should do something coherent there, but yeah. It, well, I mean, I will say to young writers, "Hey, if you write really good, we'll read you." Yes,
0: yes. that's pretty which much is it. Not very,
1: very helpful,
0: is it? You know, no, no. I mean, now we have to sort of turn our attention. You know, sort of in the background of all this, of course, Gary, and this is sort of the segueing back to where we started, which is we're getting to the end of the year, and we're going to have to restrain ourselves from talking about preparing Locus recommended reading. I'll be working on the Year's Best Science Fiction twenty twenty which is my my next big project as soon as I've finished and delivered Made to Order, my robot book for next year.
1: Well, now, the year's best science fiction 2020, we should clarify, is a new series. Uh, And it it is from Saga. It is only science fiction. It is not science fiction and fantasy together. Does that make it more or less challenging for you? So much more challenging for me. Really? So much more challenging. Not even a little bit. Like So much more challenging. Is that because science fiction is harder to choose from than fantasy, or because you have? I don't. I don't understand why it's more challenging. It seems to me okay. that I'll tell you why it's more challenging. There's a couple of things. The first is when you're
0: doing the best science fiction and fantasy, you don't have to get into codifying and defining what you're talking about. You have built into it a very a deliberate structural va- vagueness. I uh-huh. think that says I'm going to publish. I can publish rocket ships. I can publish dragons and unicorns, and I can publish anything in between that's kind of in that space. And it's all ah. valid, right? I can do that. When you put your flag in the ground and say it's science fiction, it must pass some kind of litmus t- test as being science ah. fiction, right? And I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. I'm sure that it's something that Neil Clark does in his book. I know it's something that uh, Gardner used to do with his books.
1: Yes, right.
0: Is it science fiction? If it's in, it must be science fiction, and one of the challenges right now is everybody thinks it's clever as hell to uh, blend and muck around mm-hmm. with genre, which is fun, and that works. But what it also can do is it means that something that some quite often looks like science fiction isn't science fiction, or you read a chunk of it and you're going, this is all science fiction, and then a dragon flies by and you're going, yeah, okay, so that wasn't science fiction at all.
1: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I've heard the argument before that uh, that that one supernatural or one unexplained element turns science fiction into fantasy. If if everything else is completely a technocratic fable, if there's a ghost or a dragon, but then of course you have Michael Swanwick's, you know, iron dragons with with, with jet engines. So, and here's the thing: you can. Turn... I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong
0: with blending and blurring genres at all. Uh, I understand the interest in it. I enjoy reading it, but this book
1: has I, a definition. It, it's that's its frame. And my argument a, would be my argu- my argu- my argument to you, uh, which I will be glad, to cheerfully state when I review your 2020 anthology sometime in 2021, um, is that it's not your responsibility to theoretically define the limits of the genre it's your responsibility to decide what a science fiction reader would enjoy in a story
0: i think that's only partly true i think you ha- you have to have you have to have a stake in the ground with it because I mean, there has it, to be mean, one of the things you can things you can say is this is science fiction this is what the field is seeing as science fiction right now but even then, you're starting with the feeling or with, with some kind of way of determining that it is science fiction. And the thing with defining science fiction, as everybody knows, is
1: as you fall down that rabbit hole, it doesn't get clearer. It gets murkier. That's exactly my point. And I think that I think you're absolutely right that so many writers love playing with that um uh, that mixture and and, 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 and and that liminal space between science fiction and fantasy, between the supernatural and the natural. But um, when you say a dragon flying by in an otherwise uh, urban landscape of the future uh, turns it into fantasy, does that mean a robot showing up in fairyland turns it into science fiction? It seems to me, me in, the as question is how. in most
0: cases, it's how and why. The dragon flying exactly. by the window might be some kind of native alien lizard thing that isn't an actual dragon, right. Or it might be a scientific construct. It might be a robot that looks like a dragon. Who the hell knows, right? Uh, but if it has a, a magical explanation, you know, well then you once you bring that the, the, the supernatural, you bring that concept of the f- right. of the fantastic into the the story then you've arguably broken the 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 paradigm for science fiction. And of course this is one of those things when you start this conversation, people start assigning mm-hmm. a moral value, if you will, to this. You know, sort of like, this is good, that is bad. You're saying when you say this is science fiction and you say that isn't science fiction, you're saying this is good and that is bad, right? which is not what you're doing, but it's how it gets read. Because people say, well, I want my, my work to be seen as science fiction. Mm-hmm. You're saying it's not. It's like the people who would say incorrectly that, say, Lois Bujold doesn't write space opera. Well, of course she does. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who would say, she writes does she write hard science fiction? I know people who would say, of course she does. I would be a little bit more doubtful for my own reasons. Yeah. And it comes, so then it comes down to, well, how do you define, how do you do that? And then how do you bring this into a coherent package as well? Because the other thing is that we live in a time of bloat. Or if not bloat, at least growth in terms of word count. I mean, the rise of the novella, for example, means the rise Mm -hmm. of the 30,000-word story. And there's a limit to how many 30,000-word stories you can fit in. Oh, I can
1: understand that. Sure.
0: And how do you work around... Well, okay, here's an example. Uh, Ted Chang's Exhalation features two new Mm -hmm. stories one of which I think is good and one I think which is excellent. The excellent one's 21,000 words long. He also mm-hmm. has a very interesting uh, op-ed of the f- from the future that was done in the New York Times, which I think is like 2,000 words right. or less. Do you sit there and go, well, for the sake of writing in your book, you'll go with the op-ed from the future over the long story because it's going to take up, you know, 10% of the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, most stories that seem to come around there are a lot more novelettes for all people don't like that uh, definition than there are short stories in many ways so how do you get variety balance you know
1: no and- i mean that's one of the things that would drive me nuts because if you start looking at what might arguably be the best science fiction story of the year and i think i know the one you're talking about how many stories do you want to bounce in order to fit that one in uh, how many good stories get left out so you can have an yeah. excellent story in of included
0: And then you're also getting into things like timing and everything else. So, I mean, Mm. obviously, well, Exhalation, which is the example we're talking about, came out a while ago. I've had it longer Mm. than that. But it's also true that probably the the last round of online magazines may not even buy some of their December stories until the end of November. So you may not yeah. see them in time to get them into your book. I mean, this happened to me last year and, in fact, to most of the other year's best editors. There was a very fine Annalee Newitz story on Slate's Future Tense,
1: uh-huh.
0: which appeared, I think, in the last two days of the year, you know, the, the 30th, 31st. So it's like, uh, I've handed it in the book. It's done. It's too late. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's interesting. Like I say, harder, much harder.
1: So what you're saying for for young aspiring authors is that if you want any chance at all of being in the year's best, try not to publish your story on December 30th.
0: Actually, yeah, that I would say. (laughs) Yes, yes, that is not the best sort of thing. Actually, well, no, let me say this. Every year's best editor promotes how to contact them, right? Uh If you have a story coming out in December, you will have the story and you'll probably know you've sold it. Send it to them. Uh Uh-huh. That's what you do. But, yeah, I mean, this thing, this book, it'll be a little shorter than my other year's bests. So word counts a factor. It's focused in a way that the others won't. I welcome that, but it's a formal challenge. So, anyway, we'll see how it all goes, Gary. Right now, I'm just sort of Yes. Yes. Cause I'm still still got mountains of reading and I'm eager to reflect as much of that as I can. You know, I've got all of the, I've got sort of the, you know, those Indian anthologies we've talked about, the Korean Mm -hmm. anthology, all those things. So
1: that's the thing, but but we are past the hour. We've run well over now. Oh no. Now we're, now we're, now, now we're committing horrible crimes. We should just stop.
0: Well, we will just stop in a moment. I mean, the main thing is that we'll put this one out. You'll get an episode out. You'll get another episode soon. We will be back with our round table buddies in three weeks or something to talk about Alex Harrow's The Ten Thousand Doors of January. So that'll be good. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll even try to talk to Alex before that happens. I, I'm trying to reread the find time to reread the book right now. And then we'll see what, what other adventures happen between now and Christmas. I have this feeling that although normally we should close for a hiatus, because you and I have been erratic about all of this, that we may not hiate this year. I don't know.
1: We should see. The the, the schedule depends more on yours than on mine, because as I continually remind you and everybody else who is still working for the am I'm I'm enjoying my retirement here in, well, okay, it's not sunny. Yeah, not enough to do anything else, (laughs) though. You're just kind of lying there with your glass of wine going, well, I'm retired, man. I've finished my whole bottle of wine. We have to stop podcasting. Ever again? No. Next week there <laughs> will be a new bottle.
0: <laughs> oh, uh, I would also say today is the 29th of September. Hopefully, this will go out on the 29th of September. Uh-huh. There is maybe 48 hours to buy your membership to Con Zealand at conzealand.co.nz, I think. Oh, yes.
1: Before it goes up, um, like 20 or 30 bucks or something. So Worth thinking about. Because we will be so, there. And, t- and we will be there, absolutely. Um, Wellington, can- New Zealand. Yes, don't fly. If you fly into Auckland, I've discovered you will then have to get another plane to Wellington. Because
0: it's 900 kilometers away.
1: Yes, it's not exactly a cab ride. It, it's, it's the actual full <laughs> length of
0: the island, of the North Great. Island. It's like, whoops. So, yes, do, I mean, unless you're going to drive around and enjoy the beautiful countryside and the wine and
1: and the Hobbits. But I have heard from people who have gotten their reservations already that it it can be complicated from the States to get to Wellington, so it might be worth looking into now.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. uh, Yes, that's all true. Anyway, so that's that. We will be
1: back. All will be great. And, yes, I will talk to you next week. And until then, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.